Hi, this is Pastor Jake from Harvest Community Church. We meet on Sundays at 11 a.m. at 18511 East Hampton Avenue, Suite 204. We're located in the Movie Tavern Shopping Center next to the State Farm. You can check us out online at Facebook or on our webpage at harvestcolorado.org. We hope you enjoy this week's sermon. Well, we are in Mark chapter 8. Uh, if you have a Bible, please turn it to Mark chapter 831. If you don't have one and you need one, there's some on the table in the back, or most of you have it on your phone. And I trust that you'll be using it for that purpose. So good, this is not on video. All right, Mark 8. What's that? Yeah, right. Thank you, Captain. Text message there. That's good. All right, so we're in Mark chapter 8, verse 31 through 38. So well, let's turn there and let's read together. And he began to teach them that the Son of God or the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Turning aside, he said, to, or, and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd with him, with his disciples, he said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. For what is a profit of man to give a whole world and yet forfeit his soul? And what can a man give for in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. It's remarkable to me, uh, it, uh, I don't know about you, but on my highest of highest days where you walk out feeling on top of the world, it's as if the weather person is behind it of, of life circumstances is going, get ready for the worst. Here in Colorado, we have a thing called the warm before the storm. You know, it's usually like 60 or 70 degrees and then, you know, all snow breaks loose. Well, not this year, but in other years past, it's like a crazy amount of snow comes usually when it's the warmest day during the fall, fall, winter and spring. The warm before the storm. This feeling of like, oh, all is great and right with the world and, and, and it's all going to be great. And then they wake up the next morning and it's like schools closed and, 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 you know, people running off the side of the road and it's only snowed like two inches of snow, but everybody's running for King Supers to stock up on water and hot pockets and whatever it is that, that they're going after. Well, this kind of happens in this passage. Peter, as we remember from last week, Peter uh, is asked by Jesus, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter of no will of his own, just blurts out the thing that just comes to his mind. And he realizes that Jesus is the Christ. And Jesus goes on in Matthew 16 to say, you have, this hasn't been revealed to you by man. This has been given to you by God. And it's an amazing thing that has happened. Oh my gosh, this, this is wonderful. On this confession, I will build my rock. And Peter's head has got to be swelling. Peter's got to be feeling good about himself. Oh my gosh, Jesus really likes me. He likes me more than these other 11 guys. This is amazing. Suddenly I've risen up into the, the ascendancy of, I'm not quite there with him, but I'm right underneath. I'm like right-hand man to Jesus. This is good. This is good. And then we run into today's story right afterwards. Jesus begins to teach this mission of his. 
He begins to teach this thing that's going to happen to him. He says, I'm going to go into Jerusalem. I'm going to reject it. I'm going to suffer and I'm going to be killed. And on the third day, I'm going to come back to life. And Peter suddenly feeling with this air of confidence and high power of like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought I was in the inn. I thought I was in the no. This is never going to happen. In Matthew chapter 16, and later on, it actually talks where a little more in depth. And it says that Peter pulls him aside and says, no way. This will never be. How You can't. As, as your chief of staff, Jesus, I forbid it. This is never going to happen. And then Jesus executes what I call the holy slapdown. He puts him in place. Get behind me, Satan. It seems to me that Jesus is pointing out to the rest of, of to Peter and the rest of the disciples in the crowd that there is one thing here, that the way of Jesus is the way of being a disciple. And the way of Jesus is an unhidden message of sacrifice on the behalf of other people. Jesus comes to them and, and speaks plainly of his mission. He says, I'm going to Jerusalem and I will suffer and I will be rejected. And I'll be rejected by the very ones who are the ones who study the word of God more than any other people group in that time. Those who are dedicated to the word of God are going to be those who will reject the very word of God in the flesh. And then Jesus says, I'll be killed. Public humiliation. I'll hang on a cross as a sign, as a symbol of, of, uh, of Roman rule and power. I'll hang there on a cross uh, and I will be a symbol of dejection and rejection. You'll look at me and wonder, well, why did we follow this guy all these years? And then Jesus says he will rise three days later in his resurrection. Something that was completely outside of the realm of possibility. Dead people don't come back. And you can understand and appreciate Peter's understanding of this whole thing. You're like, wait a minute, this doesn't make any sense. How can you say that this is going to happen? How can you speak openly about your own death and demise? This doesn't make sense. But Jesus openly sprinkles his intentions throughout his ministry and especially in the last week of his life. His message now expands from the kingdom is here, but now the kingdom is about to be made known and you're not going to like how this all comes to pass. So Jesus becomes not just a herald of the way of salvation, but he becomes a saying, not just that I've come, but I've come to die. I've come to be the ransom for many. See, Jesus' mission now is to do for humanity what humanity cannot do for itself, to atone for our sin in our place, to suffer for our sins, to die in our stead, to defeat death and give us his relationship with the Father. As I said before, in the beginning, Peter seems to have this mindset, this selfish, self-centered mindset. See, Peter's first objection is no way. No way. Kings do not voluntarily to suffer at the hands of their subjects. If you remember, we were talking about Christ in the actual words of, uh, of Jesus saying, I am the Christ. He means that he is the king. And Peter understands this. And he says, wait a minute, you are the king. Kings don't suffer. Kings conquer. Kings are served. Kings execute their power. But kings don't willingly suffer at the hands of their enemies. Peter's like, there is no way this is going to happen. Not if I have anything to do, to do about it. And then Peter objects another way. He goes, there's got to be another way. Not just that you will not do this, but there has to be an additional way. Because kings are in charge of the reality. Kings are in charge of the world. Kings are in charge of the kingdom. They make stuff happen. They don't just let things happen to them. There has to be another way, Jesus. Have you thought this through? 
Have you been paying attention to who you really are? Let me, let me go back about two minutes ago when I said you were the Christ. Remember when I said you were the Christ? And you're like, yeah, you didn't, re- yeah, remember that? Peter is objecting and saying, in my understanding of how this works, you're not operating in the way that I just revealed who you are. There's got to be another way. See, Peter's objections are not out to save Jesus. But Peter's objections are out to save himself. They're motivated by personal protection and fear of death. You see, he confessed Jesus as Christ and therefore he's counted as an associate with the Messiah. He is counted to be amongst his people, a friend of the king of kings. But now Jesus is saying the king is going to suffer and die on a cross, a humiliating death for all of the sins of humanity. And if the king dies, well, the associates of the king go with them. And Peter is trying to protect himself. Peter is trying to save himself. Peter is saying, wait a minute. If you die, I die. And I'm not into that. I'm not, I'm not here to die for you, Jesus, at this point. This is, this is not going to happen. I would like, uh, Peter is simply saying that he would like to avoid all unnecessary suffering and pain. I mean, I can relate to that. Yesterday, we were at uh, the Garden of the Gods, and I saw these men climbing up these narrow, narrow uh, uh, rock face. I mean, it was amazing to watch, but I thought, well, I'm down here on terra firma here. <laughs> Why would you do that? Why would you put yourself in harm's way like that? I saw a dude, actually, there's this rock, I mean, as wide as I, or as wide as I am, this guy just like slipped right through it. I'm like, look, if you're stuck, that's it. I'm not coming up there, all right? That's not the way this works. Peter's wanting to avoid all of this unnecessary pain and suffering. And so his self-centered mind causes him to unconsciously become an obstacle to Jesus's mission. He becomes an unknowing and unwitting pawn of Satan in his ignorant opposition. All of it is like, no, Jesus, I want, to, I, I, I want to save you. You're the king. I'm here for you. I want to save you and keep you so that I don't die either. And Jesus says this thing, get behind me, Satan. Listen, I've been insulted before. I've been rebuked at work before we all have. I've been in a place where someone has said, you are flat out wrong. And you need to get your priorities straight. But to be called Satan... By the king of kings. It's as if Jesus is saying, stop. Shut your mouth. You don't know what you're talking about. He's saying, you're not the person of Satan, but you're acting kind of like him. You are become not only the person who, who has confessed me, but now you are standing in my way as if you were a roadblock. You are my adversary where you were my confessor. You are now standing in my way and you need to back off and get out the way. You need to remove yourself from my mission because you are in my way now. You're acting like my adversary. You're acting like Satan did in the wilderness. You have become my tempter. You're the one who wants to prevent me from doing what I came to do for you because you can't do it on your own. And this forceful and sudden reproof of Peter, this get out of my way, was meant to be in public. See, Jesus had to correct Peter in front of the 11 so the disciples would understand what his mission was in its scope and what it really means to be a follower of Christ. So think for a moment. What if Peter had been successful in persuading Jesus not to do what he came to do? What if Peter had been successful in persuading Jesus to avoid the coming suffering and rejection and death? What would the result have been? 
cringe to think about what that would have been. But Peter does not see the forest for the trees. He does not see the mission. He doesn't see what Jesus is coming to do. All he sees is himself and protecting himself from coming pain and, and as an association with Jesus. And Jesus goes on to tell us here that the way of Jesus is the way of the disciple. He's like, look, I came to do this thing. And if you want to be my disciple, if you want to be in this group of people who have given their lives to me, here's how it works. It doesn't work by you protecting me. It works by allowing me to go do what I came to do. And then you come after and do the same. He breaks it down in a couple of different ways. In the same way that Peter had these two objections, there seems to be two ways of being a disciple. Or there's two uh, things to being a disciple. There's the no. Whoever, who would ever come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. It's funny, as a believer, as a Christian for a very long time now, and many of you have been a believer for a very long time, we don't like being told no. Especially in our country here today, we're, we're very much of a, I will do as I do, I have the freedom to do as I want to do, so you can't tell me no, you're not the boss of me. Right? You don't get to tell me what to do. I can do my, you do you, boo, and I'll do me. Right? I mean, that's kind of what has been said. We say it in our house all the time. You can't tell me how to, to live my life. You live your life as long as it doesn't. And Jesus seems to be saying here that in order to be a disciple of Christ, it's as if we must say no to ourselves. See, the fear of denying ourselves is our base instinct and our natural desire. We don't want to give up what we do and how we do. We don't want to be told that's not the way you should, should roll. If you want to be a Christ follower, Christ followers leave stuff behind. They don't drag it along with them. See, we honestly believe in our heart of hearts that our ways rule. And that the way we do things is the best way to do things. See, the mindset of the person whose heart and mind have not been truly captured by the love of God. This is a person whose mind and heart are actually stuck in their own mindset of how things ought to be. Yesterday, we went to the Garden of the Gods, as I said, uh, on a family adventure, which it truly was. I, in 20 some odd years of living here, never been there. It is amazing. It is, yeah, I mean, really, it's fantastic. And as we were getting ready to leave yesterday, we asked Hannah, our youngest, we said, hey, would you like to go with us? Now, many of your children most likely have a, a life inside of this, you know, plastic and metal box called an iPod or an iPhone or an Android phone. And their life seems to be here in these three inches of space. And their eyes are glazed over as they stare and talk to their friends and play games and such. Listen, I do it too. But we asked her to go. We said, would you like to go? She took for a moment. She had to sit there and consider in her mind whether or not she wanted to live that Saturday inside of this little iPod or get outside with mom and dad and go to a place we'd never been before. She had to make a choice. She had to deny one or the other go or not go. Thankfully, she chose to say no to her comfort. She chose to come out of the insulated world that our phones kind of make us uh, privy to. And she joined us. And I got to tell you, one of the best days we've had in a long time. It was fantastic. I'm getting an eye from my oldest now. It was a good day. <laughs> it was, she, she, cho she chose to say no to her comfort. And it wouldn't have been a great day 
Uh, and it would not have happened unless she had said no to her iPod. Unless she had denied her basic instincts to stay inside. And the same applies for following Jesus. See, Jesus tells us here that we, uh, if we confess Christ, we must learn to say no to how we've done life and join him where he goes. To be a disciple means to say no. It means to say, I don't really have a good handle on how this life ought to be led. And I really don't have a great uh, uh, an idea of how it should be. So I'm going to say no to what I've done before in the past. And I'm going to go after what Jesus does and walk with him and learn of him and figure out how he does life and then do the same. And the thing is, is when we say no, we can't bring our former way with us. This isn't like carry on luggage on an airplane. You don't get an opportunity to to take the stuff with you because eventually Jesus goes, you don't need this. You don't need this. Ooh, I don't need that finger. But not only is there a no, but there is also a yes. He says here, take up your cross and follow me. What it means to take up your cross and follow me. Now I think that many people think, well, that means take up my death. Oh, drudge along. I got to carry my cross. Everybody sees my cross. See how horrible it is to be me. Oh, come on. Following Jesus. Come on. The idea behind it, the phrase just simply means that you're down for whatever with Jesus. The phrase simply just means that to take up my cross and follow him means to go wherever Jesus leads, even if it leads into bad places, because uh, the life is not all unicorns and such. It's not all, you know, fairy dust and happiness and, and, and uh, you know, a sugar fest. It is sometimes painful. And to follow Jesus means to go wherever he goes, even if it's in the death valleys, even if it's in the dark places. To take up your cross and follow me means to adopt an attitude of, I'll go wherever you go. I'll, lead, uh, I'll take whatever it is that you're doing and I'll go wherever you go. See, when we step into the new birth of reality with Jesus that he invites us to, we should be ready for... Whatever might come, good, bad, or ugly. And along the way, we learn how Jesus does life. And then he equips us by his Holy Spirit to deal with whatever this cross-bearing life might bring us. See, for Jesus, it brought suffering and rejection and death. But because he went before us, we can learn how to do exactly his way. Because most of us, when we walk out of here, we'll deal with some sort of rejection. We will deal with some sort of opposition we will deal with some sort of pain and because he was pain he suffered the ultimate pain for us we can too suffer along and not be completely undone teaches us how to love those who abandon us and to love those who stay in following christ with uh the cross we learn how to be not shackled by our prisons of our former behaviors and instincts when we follow Christ, we learn how to love people as God does and to learn to love God as Jesus does. And as a result, this life, that this cross-bearing life, the fruit of what comes out of that becomes our witness to the new life that Jesus brings us. Jesus, or Paul says in uh, the scriptures that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, mercy, self-control. That is the evidence of the cross-bearing life. That is the evidence of someone who has said yes to Jesus and I'll go wherever you go and I can carry this thing because you carried it before me. And I can go and I can say no to all of the things that I think are right in my mind and my body and all of the natural things that go on inside of here that say, yes, this is what I ought to do. And Jesus says, no, try my way instead. And the result, instead of death and pain and suffering and hurt, what ends up happening is that I can uh, face those things with the spirit of joy. 
He let go of the markers. It, it teaches us to let go of the markers of success in this world and sets up um, how to live in light of the treasure of heaven, Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And the reward of following Jesus always has the resurrection in sight. You see, Jesus didn't say, just come after me and die. That would be the worst news ever. Take up your cross, follow me to death and roll credits. No, Jesus says something really remarkable here at the end. He says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to die. And then I'm coming back. Three days later, I'm coming out of that grave. The stone rolls away. You're going to say, whoa, look, have some bread and some fish and eat. Whoa, this is exciting. Who are you? Put your hand on my side. I mean, this is some crazy stuff that's about to happen. But the disciples don't quite get it just yet. And afterwards, they got it. In order to bear the cross and walk in this life and say yes to Jesus and no to myself, I must have the mindset that there is something greater coming. That this journey is just not some sort of wandering Battlestar Galactica, never actually getting to where you're going sort of journey thing or wagon train, depending upon your age. See? I've lost the audience. To follow, Je- to follow Jesus means to follow him to some place. On the other side of death is what he has promised us. And by his resurrection, we are going to that place. I know I'm going to get all the people who are going to come after me about wagon train. <laughs> the reward is the resurrected life. A life that Jesus received after three days in the grave. The reward is a resurrected world free of all the prisons that we have made for ourselves. And the reward is Jesus himself. On the other side, when we are all made new and we are all made like him as he has been made new, we will all have him. And we will all get to sit and and enjoy walks with him and ask him questions of things that we don't understand in this life. And he'll pull back the curtain and say, here's why. And he'll show us treasures and things that we cannot yet comprehend. We look through the glass dimly. Colors are dimmed and dulled, but on the other side, when he makes all things new, we will, re- we will revel and be joyful praise of him who has saved us by his grace. This is the life of a disciple. This is the life of someone who says yes to Christ and no to themselves and follows him to the other side. So what are our takeaways? I think number one, I think it's important for us to know we can take this away and apply this in any aspect of our lives. We are most vulnerable to failure when we feel most successful. When we're at the highest of highs, even when Jesus has honored us in an amazing way, there is a temptation to think that we are all that. There is a temptation to allow ourselves to, to uh, fully glom onto that idea and think that we don't really need God anymore. Often we become most prideful when God honors us and this pride becomes a downfall. See, Peter had just been honored by Jesus for confessing, uh, confessing who Christ was. And Peter was feeling high in the hog and yet he kind of slipped in. And got put in his place pretty publicly. We are most vulnerable when we feel most successful. But secondly, I think it's important to know that failure does not disqualify us from being disciples. Let that one sink in. There are some who would say that, oh, you blew it. You're done. You're out. See, we get this idea of, of when Jesus says, if anyone is ashamed of my words and what I do in my gospel, I will be ashamed of him. We get the idea that it's a one-time action. Uh-oh, I was ashamed of Jesus today. That's it. I'm out. Jesus cuts me from the team. 
The word ashamed here doesn't necessarily mean that. Jesus' use of the word to describe disdain towards his words and deeds. Jesus is describing this ongoing and perpetual action and attitude. I think it'd be a better phrase in English. For whoever is constantly and continually offended by me and put off by me and my gospel. That's what it means to be ashamed. If you constantly looking at Jesus and like, oh gosh, like a like an uncle who says stupid stuff all the time, or like a pastor who compares wagon train to to Battlestar Galactica, and you you continually have this idea of that of this, oh I can't believe what he's saying, I'm just so ashamed, I just can't, I'm sorry, world for this guy. If that is your heart and attitude towards Christ, that's what he means. Ashamedness is not defined by single actions of offense at Jesus' gospel and who he is, but it's an over-the-time hardening of the heart towards Christ and his good news. I think of Judas. Judas is the picture of ashamedness of who Jesus is. But thirdly, salvation is God's choice following Jesus' desires. Remember we said earlier that, that Peter was saved because he confessed Christ. But that was something that God did in his heart to allow him to see Jesus for who he really was. That's an act of God. Salvation is God's work, but discipleship is ours. Following Christ is our choice because grace, we are saved by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. But following Jesus has always been an act of choice and one that we are faced with on a minute by minute basis. Being a disciple is a lifelong journey and it will be defined by a spectrum of successes and failures, times that I acted like Jesus and times that I acted like Judas. We are all, <clears throat> excuse me, a, a amalgamation of our worst and our best. And yet God has promised himself to us to say, I will walk through all of that with you on your highest of highs and on your lowest of lows. Wow, that is awful. On your lowest of lows. That was a low. So what I want you to do, and I think the one takeaways is that, yeah, Peter got put in his place. But Jesus didn't give up on him. Sometimes God puts us in our place. But God doesn't give up on you either. Jesus is in this for the long haul. And he's with you for the long haul. So what do we do with this? Just three things. Number one, set your mind on the things of God. Jesus says here to Peter, your mind is not on the things of God. You don't understand what I'm about to do because your mind is not on the things of God. So how do we do that? We set our minds on the things of God through the daily rituals of prayer and intake of the word of God. If we want to know what God thinks about a certain thing, we go to his word. And we pray about that. God, is there someplace in me right now that does not match this? Am I objecting to your word right now? Teach me what it is. Teach me about me. Teach me about you. Inside of the word of God, we find his forgiveness and grace and love. But we also find out an honest opinion about who we really are. The Bible doesn't ever shy away from a clear and honest portrait of mankind as really a wretched beast at times. Well, shoot, all the time. But we find out that in God's word that God is never unpatient. He's constantly with us. He's constantly out rescuing people who don't deserve to be rescued. He's constantly out looking after those who spit in his face, deny him because he loves them unconditionally and died for them as well. We find out in the word of God is forgiveness and grace, his patience and his corrections. Secondly, not only should we set our minds on the things of God, but we also ought to be honest with ourselves. 
that we ought to look in the mirror and see ourselves honestly and rest in the fact that Jesus is with us for the long haul. I love that line, and I've said it before from the movie Glory. Ain't none of us clean. If we all look at each other honestly, we can see each other's faults because, well, we wear them on our sleeves. But when we get to the mirror and look at ourselves, we kind of whitewash a little bit. We kind of look over those things. We kind of paint ourselves in the best possible light. But in reality, we're as bad as we think we are. But the best part is, is in Romans where it says, for there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That means that all warts and all, all of my ugly, I can bring towards God. And he says, that's okay. I'm going to work on that. I'm in this for the long haul. There's no condemnation anymore. When you see your sinfulness, I don't condemn you for that anymore. And it's as if God simply says, listen, we're in this for the long haul. All of this stuff that you're worried about right now, we're going to fix that as we go on. And maybe some of the stuff will just leave for the resurrection. But I'm in this for you. And I think it's important for us that every once in a while to identify the ways that we've become self-centered, protectionist like Peter, prone to do things our way. And this is in all areas of life, even the secret places that we don't talk about publicly. Sex, money, career, parenting, marriage, diet, exercise, caring for this life that we have. All of it comes under the the rule of God and he works with us slowly and surely to transform us into his people. So we ought to just be honest with our sins. Because if he doesn't condemn us, then we shouldn't condemn ourselves. And we should give ourselves up to his slow and steady work to make us like himself. See, none of you is a surprise to Jesus. None of you. None of the stuff that you're hiding, none of it is a surprise to him. He's all aware of it. But he says because of his grace, we can come boldly to the throne of God. We can go boldly to him. All of our frailties and all of our brokenness. And then lastly, take baby steps to follow him in every area. Here's what I mean. When he says, take up the cross and follow me, he, the idea that we're thinking is, oh, I got to do big stuff. Oh, here's my big sin, Jesus. And we're going we're gonna to conquer this today. What he'd rather see you do is take small steps to trust him. Take baby steps. Here's a way to do it. Say this prayer this week. Lord, as I go to work today, help me not to seek out for my own personal gain and happiness. Rather, help me to follow you today and love my neighbor as myself and seek their gain before mine. Here's another way to say it. Lord, help me to deny deny my instinct to treat my children as annoyances and to follow you into their lives and love on them as they love, as you love me. How about this one? Lord, help me deny my sinful desire to seek my own pleasure and instead to seek after the care and love of my spouse above my own, above my own self. How about this one? Lord, In this situation, help me not to act in my former ways, but to follow you wherever you would lead me and in ways that would honor you and the people I am interacting with. See, Jesus promises to do, uh, promises that as we do this, we will enter into relationship with himself and with other people that will become far more satisfying, fulfilling than we could have made on our own. Take up and cross and follow me doesn't mean drudgery. It just simply means doing life Jesus's way. And that's what he's after.